I'm Mike Wall, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. In episode 5, Elise and I discuss the disappearance of Klingon cranial ridges in the Star Trek Enterprise duology Affliction and Divergence, with the help of a Caltech graduate student who studies bone morphogenetic proteins. So if you are a longtime listener of Strange New Worlds, uh, meaning you joined us at the beginning of last month, and uh, you listened to episode one, you'll hear a part where we're looking at the Star Trek Discovery trailer, and the Klingons are shown for the first time, and we had to pause the trailer right there and just talk about Klingons. And I said that I was slightly insulted deeply insulted well i was gonna actually retract that i was gonna say you know i'm not i'm not actually insulted i'm more like uh slightly lovingly annoyed whenever i see klingons having forehead ridges or cranial ridges in the era in the star trek universe around the original series so what's the big deal about this well when the original series was being filmed in the 1960s The Klingons didn't look like the classic Klingon look that we have today. They looked basically like humans, would you say? They were basically just a blackface. Yeah, they looked like a a cross between, I don't know, Mongols and Mexican people, you know. It's a a skin color that's not quite something that's usually thought of as being like a human. It's almost a little like terracotta a bit. But it's it's definitely not it's definitely darker than the, the actors who are playing them. You know, it's probably a pretty racist thing to do to just make them all you know have mustaches and dark skin. Um, but that was the '60s, and when Star Trek: The Motion Picture came out, they had a much bigger budget, and they decided to upgrade the Klingon look, make them look a little more alien-ish. Avoid that whole sticky issue. Mm-hmm. And they gave them cranial ridges, and that cranial ridge motif stuck throughout all. All of the 24th century series TNG Deep Space Nine Voyager and then when they went back to do the prequel series Enterprise the big question was you're gonna have cranial ridges or not and they decided to go with uh, the Klingon look that people had known and loved for the past couple of decades of Star Trek and then they decided in the last season of Enterprise to throw in a little nod to the original series they decided they were gonna explain why the original series Klingons didn't have cranial ridges. They were going to perform some plot first aid. Right. Sew up that plot hole. And so they did that. And then because they did that, whenever I see Klingons now, who are supposed to be Klingons in the original series era, with forehead ridges, I get a little irked. And so this happened in Star Trek Into Darkness, which was one of the reboot films. Uh, of course, that takes place in the original series era. Of course, it, it's, it's in the other universe, but that doesn't excuse anything because Enterprise is actually what is... Way before yeah, the it, Kelvin. It's true in both universes, so the Klingons shouldn't have had forehead ridges there. And I, uh, the Klingons first appeared with these metal uh, masks and the metal masks had forehead ridges on them and I was like this is so brilliant I'm so glad they honored Enterprise the Klingons are obviously ashamed that they have lost their forehead ridges and they made metal masks to cover it up and the metal masks had the forehead ridges and then of course the Klingon unmasks himself and he's got him and he's got the forehead ridges and I was like no that would have been so much better that would have been awesome yeah the way that you you imagined it right Um, okay so 
the Enterprise episode that deals with the 400 is going away is highly biological in nature. And I'm not a biologist, and Elise is not a biologist. So we decided to bring in our biologist friend, Durthog. Uh, and by Durthog, we mean Heidi Klumpa. She played a Klingon, actually, in a, in a Star Trek musical that Caltech put on last year named Durthog. And, you know, it's just a catchy name. She's got the bat left to prove her, her Klingon warrior badassery. Yeah, so. unfortunately you can't see it. But it is here in the, in yeah. the studio with us. Yeah. So. <laughs> okay, so um, to prepare for this, I asked Heidi to watch both of those Enterprise episodes. In season four, their names are Affliction and Divergence. Elise and I also watched these episodes. So why don't you two kind of just run through these episodes just in case the audience has never seen them before. You know, it's been years. So you, was this the first time watching these episodes? Yes, it was. Okay, so quick first time walkthrough summarize. I want, I want to see what stuck out in your head. Oh gosh. <laughs> Actually, so so I watched the, the pilot, I watched the first two parts of Broken Bow, and then I started watching Affliction and Divergence, and uh, I made a list of like weird things that had happened. I thought it was like funny. You, you can't see this, but Heidi has a napkin, <laughs> a napkin that is more black than it is white because she scribbled all sorts of notes onto it. It's really, it's really great. Um, yeah, yeah. I, was start, I started watching this in lab, and in lab I always take notes on a paper towels. So, uh, no, I thought it was funny that there were, like, people who were dating that, like, seemed like they should have been dating before. Hoshi suddenly got the ability to fight. Trip is still an obnoxious engineer. T'Pol somehow got prettier. Um, it was it was strange. But it, so it seemed to me like there was some previous episode where they were making human augments. Mm -hmm. And in some kind of arms race, Klingons feel that they need to also have Klingon augments. Yes. So they start doing some experiments. They give it to a Klingon who has a cold, essentially. The virus somehow picks up the augment DNA. And so the, this augmentation becomes airborne. And the problem is not only does it augment the Klingons, it also kills them eventually and it also kind of makes them bizarrely human and, and they don't like this because they're like they feel fear and this this feels strange also they they it's also funny they, they also got prettier and had nicer hair like <laughs> it was like they're very attractive that but that was weird too that's part of being an augment you're just the best i i, I don't know if that's true <laughs> okay well, well so what what is an augment at least what what is an augment in the star trek universe? so augments go back to i believe Khan was the first time that we saw augments in the original series and so basically Khan is, of course, this iconic villain. He's super strong, super smart, iconic in the way that Kirk just screaming Khan after Spock's death and Wrath of Khan. He was so loved as a villain that he got his own movie. Mm -hmm. But the, the origin of these augments was back in the Dark Ages of Earth's history. The 1990s. Um, the, yes, the Dark Ages of, of Earth's history in the Star <laughs> Trek universe. We've, we've all survived. We should be quite thankful for that. So there was a eugenics war, and... Um, basically, there were these superhumans who were made using genetic engineering, which is something that we're getting better and better at doing, so this is becoming more and more of a possibility. And you would think that this would be a great idea, but somehow, in all this genetic engineering, not only were these people smarter, faster, just generally better, but they were also much more aggressive. They felt entitled because they were better to just sort of take the place of the humans that had come before, and they were incredibly dangerous. And so. Being enlightened as they were, they didn't just kill them all off. Uh, they froze them in a spaceship and shot them out into space on the Botany Bay. And um, Dr. Sung, I believe, is the character who holds on to some of them and starts making more in Enterprise. 
And that is where the augment DNA in Enterprise comes from, from Dr. Sung's work on augments, which is a technology from the 1990s. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so back to the episodes of Fliction and Divergence. So the Klingons are infected, they're becoming more human, they're becoming sick, and they're dying. So what happens? So I guess they, they kidnap Phlox, who's like, I guess, an excellent doctor with specialty in virology. And mm-hmm. I think come, because I guess it, it would be, it would show weakness to actually ask for help. So they do it in this like... Classic Klingon fashion. <laughs> yeah. And then they basically kind of lock him in with this Klingon doctor who really admires Phlox. And they have, I don't know, a limited amount of time to find a solution. Because if they don't, the head Klingons will come obliterate their colony. Yeah, essentially. And I guess... He's brilliant, so they, they face lots of obstacles, but the solution they eventually arrive at is they will have an inheritable cure that stops the virus midway, and that's how you get the explanation, because the when you stop it midway, you lose your forehead ridges, and your neural pathways are disrupted, so you kind of become more ferocious, um, but you don't get sick and die. Yeah, that sounds about right. That's as good of a... Oh, and then Archer shows up, right? Oh, yeah. yeah. He's, he's quite important. <laughs> there's, an inter- there's an intermediate step where they use a human as a bioreactor to uh, somehow grow up some part of the cure. Although, try as I might to take notes on the biological things here, we I think it is still ambiguous to me how exactly... Um, the cure works. All right, so that's a good. Let's find place out together. To, yeah, let's, let's try to discuss <laughs> this. Yeah. Okay. So um, the big question that we're trying to get at here is: Is this kind of transformation possible? Can a virus infect a population, and then whether there's a cure or not, I guess, still inflict that population with a change in their skeletal structure, such that, for instance, cranial ridges disappear? But to get there, we need to take baby steps. So Heidi, what is a virus? So a virus occupies a kind of a strange space between living and non-living things. It is sort of a minimalist set of DNA that encodes a small number of proteins, but not enough, I guess, protein machinery to propagate itself. So a virus has to infect a living cell, sort of hijack it, and use its machinery to propagate itself. So a, a virus needs a living cell to kind of make more viruses. And this is how they work. But there are a couple kinds, and I think um, the lysogenic ones, supposedly, are the ones that can actually integrate into the hum- into the genome of the cell and stick around longer. So there are two types. But this is kind of crucial, right? That you need the virus need not only infect the cell but also permanently alter its genome. And that actually happens. Yes, yeah, supposedly in in this uh, episode. Oh, this yeah, this happens in real life. Okay, so another thing to ask is, say it gets inside your genome would it be inherited? Mm-hmm. Um, and I looked this up, and I was surprised to find this does exist in the human genome. They're called um, endogenous retroviruses, and supposedly they make up 5 to 8% of the human genome, which is shocking when you realize that 1% of the human genome is protein coding. So it's this huge proportion. And it turns out that most of them are mutated and don't actually do anything anymore, but they're sort of like genetic fossils. And apparently some of them go back to even before humans and chimps diverged. Mm-hmm. So these things got into our genome like very, very early in our evolutionary history. So it is entirely possible that you could have a, a virus infect a genome and it would be propagated. The one wrinkle is that it has to be a germline mutation, not a somatic mutation. And basically what that means is, say a virus infects like a skin cell of mine or a bone cell of mine. My children will not get that mutation because my children are composed of DNA that's basically comes from my eggs or from, you know, my partner's sperm or whatever. So it actually would have to be a mutation that was in that egg cell or that sperm cell um, for it actually to be propagated. 
That's incredible. <laughs> now, okay, no so idea. you mentioned DNA and proteins as well, and that D DNA codes for proteins, 1% of our genome codes for proteins. Can you just sort of walk us through what DNA does, what proteins do, etc.? Is et DNA a rock? <laughs> Is DNA a rock? Yeah, I'm a, I'm a geologist. It's definitely not cool if it's not a rock. Unfortunately, DNA is not a rock. So uh, we can think of a couple of the big classes well, two of the major classes of biomolecules are nucleic acids and proteins. Um, and there's this basic idea in biology of the central dogma, which is that um, we have DNA, which is the slightly more stable of the nucleotides. And this is the software that the human cells run on and can produce RNA, which is another kind of nucleic acid, which then becomes a protein. Um, and these are sort of the actual machines that um, can, can go out and do the work. So the DNA is the software, the program that you're written in, and the proteins are the hardware that's actually doing the things that you need your body to do. Yeah. Cool. So say the virus infects you and changes the genome of your germline, what DNA would need to be altered so that you would have a change in your skeletal structure? Um, actually, can we take a step back? Yes. Because I guess before we think about what genes would need to be changed? I think an interesting question to answer is how does the virus go about making these changes? Because there's a line in the episode where Fox says that augment DNA is aggressive. And I found that interesting because I wasn't sure what he meant. But there actually is a kind of a new invention in genetic engineering called gene drives. And the basic idea is that most organisms have more than one copy of their genome. As humans, we have two. And so each of those two copies is called an allele. You could have both of your alleles be the same copy. In that case, you are called homozygous, homo being the same. And those alleles could be different copies, then you'd be heterozygous. If you heard about uh, Gregor Mendel's like P experiments, where there were dominant and recessive alleles, the, then the, the phenotype of the P plant, or like its physical characteristics, were tied to how many copies of each allele it had. So say you really wanted to drive a certain phenotype, you may need to mutate both copies of that gene, or both alleles. So say the virus is infecting the Klingons, and you really want to be sure you mutate both copies, um, you would need something that has been invented recently called a gene drive, which is essentially an allele that is aggressive, kind of like Fox says. It has the ability not only to mutate the one copy, but then mutate its sister copy in the other one. And it actually uses um, CRISPR technology that um, the basic idea being you can use um, you know, these very specific nucleases and guide them with a specific RNA molecule called a guide RNA to mutate the other one. Um, and this has been implemented when application is uh, mosquitoes. If you want to somehow make them less infective or less able to breed, you could give them a gene drive. Or you would infect them with a gene drive and then it would become, it would spread even more rapidly through the population than it would by sexual reproduction alone. So I thought it was interesting that maybe the virus actually operates by some kind of gene drive mechanism, and that's why it is so aggressive. That's really cool. That's amazing, yeah. You come in contact with any augment DNA at all, and it just takes over. Yeah, but then the interesting question is, which gene would you actually have to mutate? And of course, the first one I would think of are these genes called BMPs, um, which stands for Bone Morphogenetic Proteins. Um, and as the name sort of implies, they're related to bones, and morphogenetic meaning shape. And they were discovered, I think, when they were uh, someone ground up some cow parts and fractionated it, and eventually found this one fraction that could induce bone growth. And so they were like, aha, these proteins are important um, in embryos for setting up the shape of the bones, but also they're important in adults for maintaining 
bone growth and formation. But it turns out they're actually important in all organs. So they're also important for setting up patterns in kidneys, I think also in your skeletal muscle, in your eye, and they're even, they've even been implicated in glioblastoma. So it's possible there's BMP signaling. What is glioblastoma? Sorry, well, you don't want it. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> you don't want it. Glioblastoma would be a brain tumor. So essentially, BMP signaling is potentially also prevalent in the brain. So one of the problems with this episode is a virus is very short, right? So the flu virus is in the order of uh, maybe like 2,000 base pairs. Okay. So can we think of a single gene that would be responsible for all the effects that we see? And BMPs could potentially do it. We know they definitely affect bones, and they could also affect signaling in the brain. So how long is a BMP's genome? The, 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 the genome coding that codes for, for, yeah. for a BMP? It's actually probably much longer. I think it's probably on the order of, I don't know, 5,000 base pairs. And, and for sure. reference, the human genome in total length is billions? Yeah, I believe it's about a billion. Okay. So the you're saying that the virus wouldn't actually be able to carry enough information to insert an entirely new BMP into the Yeah, the so that, that's another question that's not really answered, because at some point, Phlox says, what are these human genes doing in this virus? And I was like, genes, plural? They've <laughs> <laughs> just got really nice, big, fat viruses. I mean, I, I was just, I think one thing that's not explained well, but, but is very interesting biologically, is how much space is there to actually do anything? Maybe a thing that would be easier to do rather than putting in an entirely new gene is actually mutating. So I said previously only 1% of the genome is protein coding. What's the other 99% doing? This is kind of an open question. People call it the, the dark matter of the, the genome. But That's a lot cool. of it is regulatory, right? It's controlling when those genes are expressed or how they are processed, or whether we can make multiple copies. So actually in Broken Bow, the sibilants, I think, say, you know, humans share 99% of their genome with chimps. Why are we so different? So, you know, some people, it's, I guess, small pieces of DNA, these small regulatory regions can affect large changes. We think that humans are different than chimps. So one possibility for a way that you could have a lot of change by inserting a small number of base pairs would be to influence the regulation of these BMPs. Perhaps like turn off expression or turn on expression, or you make them be expressed in the brain when they're not supposed to be expressed in the brain. That's incredible. So instead of actually changing the machinery, you'd just go and turn an off switch off or just, just hit up the circuit board instead of actually messing with the machine. Yeah. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. So you actually study BMPs. Yes. <laughs> okay. How do you how do you go about studying bone morphogenic proteins, and what kinds of scientific questions are you asking when you're studying them? So one of the questions my lab is interested in answering is how cells process signals from their environment, because they're constantly trying to figure out lots of things and making complex decisions. And we usually think about this in the context of development, where essentially you have to go from a single cell to multiple cells. And not only do you want this final organism to have a specific shape, you also want there to be specific cell types and specific locations. So there's a lot of like kind of complex regulation going on. And one thing we noticed is that a lot of the signaling pathways, which is just a fancy word for saying signals that can affect changes in inside the cell, usually of gene expression, is there's a lot of inputs and only one output. And the question is, why would evolution pick this design? Surely you would want one signal, one function. But instead, with the BMPs, there are as many as 20 possible inputs controlling one output. And we think that this allows kind of for more complex signal integration. So rather than having kind of one BMP do one thing, rather there are mixtures of BMPs that can do more complex effects. So rather than the cell just counting how many BMP signals it gets, it could actually do like a division and say, oh, okay, or it can compute the ratio of two inputs. 
and then compute some kind of output. So that, that tends to be how we think about it. And hopefully this would help us understand something like development because we people can cut open an embryo and say stain for different BMPs and see where they are. And they know there are a lot of mixtures there, but it's not quite clear you know, which BMP is important for actually regulating different processes. And then there's this mysterious fact that despite the fact that they regulate one output, they do so many things because you know they help you know help you form your kidney, help you form your heart, help you form your bones. So maybe more complex regulation is actually needed for this small number of proteins to control so many functions. Wow. Wait. Definitely not a rock. <laughs> <laughs> so you are not a Star Trek initiate. So the techno babble must have been pretty frightening when you first started <laughs> listening to it. So so give us a highlight reel. What was what were your favorite fictional stress on the fiction science fiction moments from this set of episodes because there are some great ones. Oh gosh. Yes. I think my favorite is when Flox says there's something familiar about these base pair sequences because most people, when we look at base pair sequences, you have to like have this complex algorithm that looks at thousands of base pairs at a time. And I assume Flox is looking at maybe 12. Um, <laughs> and it's sort of like, yes, I have seen TAGA before, multiple times in this genome. Um, and I think at some point he claims to recognize a, a human gene, which is again, like we've discussed, you know, thousands of base pairs. Does, uh, does Flox have, I don't know, maybe he has entire entire genes memorized. Um, it's, Wouldn't put it past them. Those are novulins. I yeah. mean, it's like memorizing digits of pi. Who knows? Um, there's also a part where he says, uh, load the amino acids. It'll extract the viral DNA from his blood. Uh, I don't think that's how amino acids work, <laughs> but good try. And I think at some point, yeah, he puts in a metabolic catalyst to kind of help speed up the captain's immune response. And uh, I'm not quite sure what connection metabolism has to immune response, other than maybe they think it just makes everything run faster. So all the cellular processes are uh, sped up. But uh, I think in general, a lot of that stuff is more temperature limited. So maybe if he gets a fever, maybe he'll... He uh, was sweating. sweating. <laughs> maybe, maybe that's what happened. He just ran hotter. Um, but yeah, those are pretty funny. Cool. That's awesome to hear. So what is our what is our kind of final verdict on what we saw in the, in these two episodes? Is that, by the farthest stretches of the imagination, realistic? Is there a way that we can imagine, with a few nudges here and there, maybe the virus had a longer genome than other viruses that we have? Um, Who knows what Klingon viruses yeah, are like? Kling They're probably just as aggressive as Klingons. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, one, one thing that we haven't touched upon is the immediacy of the effect. Can you do that? So, this also amused me because I was like, I think that, yeah, I don't think so. I actually looked this up. So apparently humans, re I think, replace our entire skeleton in maybe about a decade. Right? Oh, really? Yeah. We so, actually do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I didn't, I didn't know that we replaced our skeleton. Do you feel like a new man, Mike? I, I guess I've lived, what, two and a half decades now? So, yeah. <laughs> maybe you've had two and a half skeletons. No, there's this process called bone remodeling, essentially, which is also mediated by BMPs. And you have these cells called osteoclasts, which come and eat the bone up. And then you have these cells called osteoblasts, which come back and rebuild it. And you can imagine when you get an imbalance, you might get something like osteoporosis. You get more degradation than you do get building back up, essentially. But it just happens way too fast, I think, here. And you also have to think about the, the time scale of gene expression, because um, we've yeah. talked about like how quickly can you turn a gene on and off. And I think even like I have like a set of cells and I induce some gene expression, I'll be really happy if I see it two hours later. So I think it happens too fast. Another thing they don't answer is their skin automatically shrinks. So even if you could somehow program it to like selectively just have, like, like saggy foreheads. Like I think they would have saggy foreheads. So um, 
Yeah, I think there were like some problems with scale, right? Mm-hmm. Obviously, the time scale of the response and also the size of the, the virus. It was not quite clear how big it was. But um, I think the idea of aggressive DNA definitely works. Awesome. Um, and I think it's possible if they had some kind of, assuming that they had an inheritable virus, then you could have some other kind of inheritable engineered thing that sort of stopped it halfway. But I'm not quite sure what antibodies had to do with it. <laughs> Maybe that could be the title of the episode. I'm not quite, quite sure, sure what antibodies had to do with it. <laughs> Is there any way that you can imagine what antibodies had to do with it? Because I mean, Captain Archer just had to be had to have his hero, hero moment. moment, right? Yeah. So I mean, he had to sit in that or, chair. Or, or even to, if ah. not antibodies, like what was what was Archer doing there? <laughs> I think as of he's basically a bioreactor. He's a they, bioreactor. They, okay. they need they need to grow up more copies of this virus, I suppose, and and we can imagine that maybe it's it's not a virus that would replicate in bacteria. You need mammalian cells, so he doesn't have time for mammalian cell culture. Just use what you got. Use what you got, <laughs> I, I suppose. But even if it might be fun to do an order of magnitude calculation, but I think knowing how fast DNA polymerase works, how quickly a viral genome can be replicated, I still. I'm not sure how many more copies you would get in, uh, in like 20 minutes. minutes. Yeah. <laughs> so, well, uh, Archer's, you know, uh, super... He's, he, he's was metabolic, he was metabolically catalyzed. <laughs> Captain Bioreactor. <laughs> Captain Bioreactor. That's a good name. That's a good episode name, too. Yeah. I wonder what you're going to pick. <laughs> All right. Thanks um, so much for being here with us, Heidi. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. This was a really fun episode to watch, and it was, it was fun to think about. That concludes Episode 5 of Strange New Worlds. We hope you learned about genetic engineering, virology, and bone morphogenetic proteins, and have found a new appreciation for the Enterprise episodes Affliction and Divergence. Until next time, kapla! And see you out there.